Good morning, everyone. We want to continue this morning to continue our um, lessons in 1 Corinthians. We have gotten to the seventh chapter in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And the hits just keep on coming. This is a, this is a very, very straightforward, very focused, um, very difficult, often difficult letter to read. Uh, we read of the state of the Corinthians throughout the two letters uh, that Paul wrote to them. And we might think to ourselves, boy, you know, <laughs> quite often that sounds just like today. It sounds uh, very much uh, like the problems that we often have in our own assemblies, in our own, in our own homes, in our own families and lives. And uh, I don't know about you, but um, my family has been ravaged by divorce. And I think a lot of, of families have had to deal with that. Now, in our particular verses here, there's a lot of talking um, about marriage itself. And we're going to focus on that first before we move on uh, to the rest of the lessons um, as we go forward there. But if you look at the, ver- the first seven verses there, that's where we're going to concentrate this lesson. And I don't think, uh, personally, just in my own life, I don't think there are many biblical topics that have had to deal with the kind of twisting and perverting uh, that marriage has in our in our day and, and age and, and divorce in our day and age. And it never ceases to amaze me why that is true. Uh, we're talking about God's first covenant between Himself and humanity. This was established in the Garden of Eden. This is something that God gave to Adam and to Eve. And it was so precious that it was the first thing on his mind between himself and mankind after creation. He saw what Adam was going through and he saw that it wasn't good for him to be alone. And so he decided to uh, create this covenant so that he could enjoy what he was supposed to enjoy. And so we look at that and we read Corinthians and we see what has come of that. And we could ask ourselves that question. When you look at marriage today, you look at the idea of divorce today, what has come of that? What has come of that original, preeminent covenant that God has made between Himself and humanity? Well, Malachi puts it very clear. And that's something that you and I need to understand. And all the things that have gone on in my family and all the things that my my family members have had to go through, um, Malachi still doesn't change. God hates divorce. And that's exactly what the Scriptures say. You may be in a particular circumstance. You may be in a particular position or point in your life. It doesn't change the fact that God hates divorce. We can uh, twist it as many have. We can pervert it in any way we wish. Hopefully, Not to our own destruction, but the fact of the matter is that divorce is a concept alien to the mind of God, to the point that Malachi would say very simply that God hates divorce. And so we have to remember that as we're reading this letter. 
Because the Corinthian position, and often our position on it, is is very different. There are even some who would look at 1 Corinthians 7 and 1. It is actually, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We People almost look at that and they say, yeah, that's what Paul is saying. <laughs> that's what he's writing. But that's not what he's saying. Someone obviously, confidently, wrote this to Paul. In your, in, your, uh, in your version of the Bible, it may even be in quotes. Paul is quoting something that he read in a letter from someone or, or a group of some people in Corinth who confidently wrote this, expecting it to be on par with his will. And that's very strange. Because Paul has just taught, and we, as we read in the previous chapters, he's just taught about sexual immorality. And now he leads into this quote, and he's leading into this quote with this laser-like focus. And so we know, and, and your version may say that it's good uh, for a man not to touch a woman. Right? Your, your version might say that. Others may say to have sexual relations with you. Well, this, it all means the same thing here. This is exactly what Paul is dealing with that has been written to him. And throughout history, uh, this has been an idea that has not been translated quite well into our, our society and especially into our faith. It is good for a man not to... Uh, have sexual relations with a woman. That's true. It's always been true. But Paul's not saying that that's an absolute here. And remember, he's already addressed a, a, a problem on the other side of the issue. On the other extreme, if you will. He's already focused on the fact that people are saying, well, all things are lawful. So at Corinth, you've got some on the one side saying, it's my body, I can do with it what I want. God wants me to be happy. It doesn't matter what I do with it. You know, it, God gave it to me. It's mine to do with what I want and you just leave me alone. And Paul says, no, that's not true. Your body belongs to God. He has purchased it. And you don't get to do what you want with it. Well, now you've got the total other side over here in Corinth as well. Well, then men should just not touch women. You see the division there? This is yet another division at Corinth. We've gone from all things are lawful, my body is my body and I can do whatever I want with it, uh, to those who now address something completely different. They believe there should be no contact between a man and a woman. Now I know some fathers and parents that would appreciate that if that could actually happen. <laughs> but, you know, this is not the way that things work, is it? It's not the way that things go on. And so we see here uh, something very much like we see today. These clear divisions there. Uh, in, in Catholicism, the priesthood is supposed to be celibate, right? This is something that comes from the Scriptures. As if Paul was giving permission for that, which Paul was not giving permission for that. He's simply quoting what the divided brethren believed about it. Believed wrongfully, believed falsely about it. And so we misconstrue that and we will create an entire doctrine around that which is completely false. 
And even in those days and days after it, there were even religions that taught the only reason that a man should touch a woman is for childbearing, is for procreation. That was the only reason. That was a widespread thing as well. Maybe even at Corinth. I I really have no idea. But it could have been a widespread thing there as well. And so by the time a woman could not have children anymore, that was it. Sarah would have been surprised by that. right? It's like I told my wife, Sarah didn't laugh because her husband never came near her anymore. She laughed because she was too old to bear a child if he did. And that's the thing to remember, you know, the, these are things that the scriptures are clear of that we can, that we can focus on and we can understand. But why? Why do we switch them? Why do we pervert them? Why do we turn them into something that they are not? Because God placed marriage together. He made that covenant so that our desires could be fulfilled in godly ways. That's exactly what He did. So that we wouldn't be hopping from person to person, bed to bed, thing to thing, whatever it is, like animals. So that we wouldn't be doing that. And if you read in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 2, look at what he says there. Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Good idea, right? Notice what Paul is saying there and what Paul is not saying there. Paul is saying that marriage is the antidote for sexual immorality, if that's a fair enough word to use. He says it is the antidote for that. Especially with what's going on at Corinth. He's telling the Corinthians, look, God's covenant of marriage is to fulfill every desire. You want to have children? That that wonderful blessing of children? That comes in the marriage covenant. Your every desire can be fulfilled for, for, for children. Do you want a mutual love, a companionship, a true, loving, faithful partner through life? Those are great blessings. It comes through marriage. Do you want to fulfill that desire that you have sexually? Then that comes about in marriage. And then not to put too fine a point on it, which he does anyway, you turn to Ephesians the 5th chapter, look at verses 23-52, through and Paul tells us again very clearly, just like he was telling the Corinthians, marriage is to help us appreciate the relationship between Christ and And the church. That's what marriage is given for. All of those amazing blessings to fulfill every desire. Now that's understanding what is written uh, a little later in verse 9, which we'll get to later. But if you look in verse 9 just real quick, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Let's remember that he's not saying there, if you can't control yourself, if you're basically ruled by your sexual desires, get married. He's not saying that. Please do not read that into it. Okay? Because I'll tell you why why not. (laughs) If you are going to get married because you cannot control your sexual desires, you won't be married very long. 
Don't forget that. Remember that. If sexual desire is your reason for getting married, sexual desire will go on, chances are, and I would say a high percentage of the time, outside of the marriage. So we parents, and we older people, and we younger people, whoever you are, you need to keep that in your head. If my son or my daughter comes to me and says, you know, I just can't stay away from her, Dad. Or or comes to me and says, you know, I don't have daughters, but Dad, you know, he is so attractive that I can't stop thinking about him in that way. The answer is not to push them together. Okay, that is not the answer. The answer is to keep them apart and help them to learn to control those passions or they will destroy the marriage that you put them into. Let's have some common sense here. That's what Paul is saying and what he is not saying. And we have to read into this what he is saying because there is a sad and perverted view of marriage that we have allowed in our generations. Marriage has ceased to be what God intended and we've got to work to stop that. We've got to. Look at our perversions of this text. Okay, how many times have you heard of a male and a female told that? Their lustful nature toward one another can only be remedied by a thoughtful marriage, thoughtless marriage to one another. It happens all the time. Do you think that a 50% divorce rate is any better among Christians than it is among people of the world? No. It's exactly the same. I said that in a sermon one time and they're like, what? Wait a minute. Christians don't stay married better? No! <laughs> no, they don't. They come under the same temptation attacks that everybody else does and they are just as poor at reacting to it as everybody else is. The divorce rate among Christians is no different than the divorce rate, period. And this is the reason why. It happens all the time and it is not what Paul is saying here. To tell our children, well, I'd rather you get married than get pregnant out of marriage is foolish advice. And it's sad advice. And we have to remember what's important and what isn't important. And Paul is struggling with the Corinthians to tell them what marriage truly is. If marriage is desire fulfilled, and it is, all those desires we talked about, Friendship, mutual love, physical fulfillment, children. Uh, a reminder, a constant reminder. Marriage was placed there so that we would remember Christ's relationship to us. How can it be anything other than desire fulfilled? And that's the thing. We've changed it into something that it isn't. Because if desire is fulfilled in marriage, there won't be any adultery. It will not exist. <coughs> If desire is fulfilled in marriage, there will be no polygamy. I don't need more than one. I don't need more than one Savior either. And hallelujah for that. I only need my spouse. And if marriage is desire fulfilled, where are the homosexuals at? We just keep telling ourselves, Something else is okay. Something else is okay. Something else is okay. No, it is not. 
God created this in the garden. He created it between male and female. Pure, spiritual, faithful, and that's the only way it works. You try to do it some other way, you will fail. And that is the bottom line to what we see. Our spouse is to be all our desire for all of those reasons. Our spouse is not to be the fulfillment of our lust. It is not the same thing. And we've got to quit making it the same thing. And so that means we've got to practice in our marriages selflessness. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3-7, through notice what he says. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, the right to sexual fulfillment. In case anybody doesn't know what conjugal means. I hate it when they put those big words in there. (laughs) The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, does he stop there? No, listen. The guy stopped there and goes, See, honey? I got power over you. No. Paul says it's reciprocal. He says, um, She doesn't have power over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. Paul is being profoundly simple here. Profoundly simple. Spouses are obligated to the other, one to the other, to fulfill sexual desire. Very simple. He calls it authority over one's body and over the other. Paul also designates the word give. Notice that he says that, right? He uses the word give. He does not use the word demand. He does not use the word take. (coughs) Demanding what you want or taking what you want because you feel you have some authority in marriage you do not have is blasphemous. And it dismantles God's covenant for marriage. And we need to quit beating around the bushes there and trying to make it something it's not. We have to understand marriage for the way that Paul has designated it by the Holy Spirit and quit turning it into something weak and unprofitable. He says it is everything. Notice the equality between the man and the woman. Notice the mutuality of the language here by Paul between the man and the woman. This is not I want. This is not I demand that you do this. And this is certainly not, okay, I'll just give in to please you. Now we need to take note of this. It's not I demand. It's not I want. And it's not I am just going to give in to please you. This is deference to one another. 
This is reliance upon one another based in compassion and love. That's what the selflessness in marriage is that Paul is teaching us here. Now some people will ask the question, does this authority and does this give have any limitations? Well, it would certainly have to, wouldn't it? Anything and everything does. But what are those limitations going to be? Now I tell you something that is a modern problem, probably a problem in that time as well. We have to be very careful here. I've heard people say, you know, I can, I can, uh, <laughs> I can justify anything in the marital bed because of Hebrews 13 and 4. Have you ever read that? The marital bed is undefiled, the Hebrew writer says. And we have people who, I believe, thoughtlessly, are saying that anything that goes on in the, bath, in the bedroom between husband and wife is their business, their thing, and has nothing else to do with it. And I'm going to tell you today that I do not believe that is true. Or at least that we have to be very careful there. Marriage is the arena for sexual fulfillment. That is what Paul is saying between the spouses. But I do not believe it is the arena for exploring every sexual fantasy that someone can think up in their minds. And let me explain why. This is what scares me about it. Because husband and wife, as spouse, as married, as spouses and as married, they create a covenant there. A a team, if you will. And there are to be no third parties to that team. Okay, It's it's to be between her and it is to be between him. Him and her, that's it. Just those two. And that's a difficult thing in our modern society. Because you know as well as I do that third parties are always getting involved in marital troubles. It could be in the form of devices. I will go no farther than that. It could be in the form of pornographic images or mediums of some kind. I will go no farther than that. But it could also be in sexually deviant behavior learned from those third parties. Left to themselves, a husband and a wife can fulfill each other's desires just fine. That is exactly how God created the one and the other. Whenever either or both have to go outside of that to a third party, I believe they have sinned. And I believe they are attacking the very covenant of marriage that God has made. And I believe they have to be very, very careful of that. And we have to ask ourselves that difficult and necessary question. Especially for those who are married lawfully and zealous of faith to stay together and to be the brother and sister in Christ, the husband and wife uh, that, that they have been given to be by the Lord. This is very important for them to ask this question and answer it. And there can be no assumptions based in that. There can be no coercions In that, this has to be a practice of fidelity. Because there must not be 
any selflessness in marriage. Paul further demands that spouses are not to deprive one another. Here's another side of the issue. There's a, there's a joke about somebody having a headache. You know, you always hear that joke, right? I have a headache. Okay. Uh, well, we all understand that may or may not be true. And I'm telling you from what I understand, from what Paul is saying here, it better be true. Because if it isn't, you have to be more careful. This is a dangerous position to take. Do not deprive one another. Much damage has been done to marriages. I have seen it. You have seen it. Based on one spouse depriving the other. Why? Because they get angry. Well, if you're going to do that, then I, you're, you're just going to be out of the bedroom, mister. It was kind of funny when I, when I first got married to Deanna. I said, I've got plenty of tools and wood. I'll break down the door. It'll stay in my bed that night, angry at me or not. And I will fix the door the next day. And she just laughed at me and she goes, okay, okay. You know, pats me on the head, gives me a cookie, tells me to go away. No, but anyway, but uh, <laughs> no, just joking. But, but that's the thing is I told her there will be none of that. If we're going to be married, we're going to be married. You don't stomp off. I don't stomp off. Uh, you know, we don't deprive one another in those ways. It's just not to be done. But it happens all the time. I got a little secret for those of you married, whether young or old. Your spouse is going to disappoint you from time to time. (laughs) Your spouse, no. Your spouse is going to anger you to no end from time to time. Okay? This is going to happen. Uh, But that doesn't translate over at all into your marriage. And if it does, you are wrong. Stop it. That does not translate over into your marriage. It is not uncommon for one spouse to take it upon themselves to punish the other spouse through the deprivation of sexual intimacy. Paul says, wrong. Sin. Do not do it. That is not right. Paul makes this so clear that he gives only one inspired reason for deprivation of that intimacy. And it is only a temporary one. And let's note how temporary it is. And I, 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 I'm so thankful of the Holy Spirit and of Paul that this is here. I'm just so thankful of it. After that, that whole discourse... Do not deprive one another except to be for a time. And then he says, let me explain exactly what I'm talking about. He's going to give you a prime example of this. And he's not going to move away from it. A prime example. And this is likely here in the scripture to quash all that wisdom that we've gotten. We're going to talk about all that wisdom we think we have regarding this idea that we talk ourselves into and is not right. Okay? Uh, He gives that one reason. He says, devotion to prayer. Isn't that amazing? Now think of that marriage just for a moment. Honey, you're angry at me. You bet I'm angry at you. Let's pray. What? Let's pray together. I don't want you mad at me. 
and I don't want to do anything that makes you mad. Let's get on our knees right now and pray. Because this isn't the way this is supposed to be. How would your marriage be after that? How would my marriage be after that? Say, Joe, do you do that? No, not even near it. But I read this and I look at it and I go, boy, I should. And I better. Because I've made it 24 years and I may not make it any longer if I don't straighten up. And we may not make it any longer if we don't straighten up, right? This is something to think about. And that's why Paul puts it right there. Are you mad at me? Are you disappointed in me? Do you Are you outright feeling vengeance <laughs> towards me? Honey, let's pray. Is Paul crazy? No. He's not crazy. He says this is the one reason. If you're angry, disappointed, or otherwise vengeful, the best thing you can do is pray. Which I believe means you both pray together. I believe that's implied in the text. You both agree to do this. This is in agreement, right? He says this is, this is the qualification of this reaction. You both have to agree to it. So to me, that means they're praying together. They're praying together. It is for a limited time. It has a spiritual purpose. And it ends with that union recovered to faithfulness and love and godliness and righteousness. When we look at it, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Does he say that this separation should last many days? You've heard that. I've heard elders of the church say that. Well, maybe the two of you should be away for four or five days from each other. My answer to that was, what? And I got to look. Don't look at me like that, young man. I'm an elder. No. Maybe an elder like the Ezekiel elders, but not an elder like Paul is talking about. Not one giving advice like Paul would give. No, you don't stay away from each other. Can you think of anything more doofy than that? Other than being together if you're sexually immoral? Like we just talked about, those two things are tragically against each other. And we say it sometimes. Well, you you go to your mom's house, and you go to your mom's house for the weekend, and get away from each other. Is that what Paul said? No. He says it's for a limited time and it's about prayer. Now, if your prayer lasts four days, then maybe you've got an argument. Can you pray for four days? I don't think so. You pray for a few hours, you're going to have to go to the bathroom. You're going to have to get a little hungry and eat something. You're going to need a glass of water or something. Something's going to interrupt that prayer. He's very specific. Devote to prayer. When that prayer's over, you better be back on this thing right or you're doing it wrong. Get back on your knees again. That's what he's talking about here. Devotion to one another. Adding to your faith in that process. Resolving for peace in that process. The covenant emerges. It is intact and it is functional again. And all it took was one prayer. How profoundly simple. 
Can you imagine? I can change your life with a prayer. I can change your relationship with prayer. I can fix this. God is saying through Paul, pray. Because if you can be angry, disappointed, or otherwise vengeful at your spouse or anybody else while you're praying to God before the throne of heaven, you got a heart problem that I cannot define. And you've got a brain problem that I cannot define because if you are before the throne of grace, you are not going to hold on to that anger. You are not going to hold on to that disappointment. And vengeful? That won't even be a word in your vocabulary. It simply will not be done. And that's what Paul is saying. Prayer fixes everything. Because if you separate, you're in sin. And we twist this passage and pervert it, don't we? Worldly and Christian alike. So that we can... We can extol some virtue of separation. No, no, no. Paul is not saying that. And you know what? I said my family is being ravaged by divorce. Has been ravaged by divorce. But it has been ravaged by separation as well. Christians actually talk themselves into that. Well, you didn't cheat on me. And I didn't cheat on you. But I can't stand you anymore. So we can't get a divorce, but we're going to be separated. And they think that's godly. That is sin, plain and simple. It is sin. Do you know Christians who are separated but not divorced? Who are acting divorced but have not legally divorced? I do. Sadly, in my own family. And they think that's the best way. And I think to myself... Who thought that up? Who counseled you to do that? Satan did. That's right. Who counseled you to do that? Because it wasn't Paul. It wasn't the Word of God. It was somebody else. Or something else. And this passage reveals you cannot do that. That's sin, brethren. Plain and simple. It's sin. Because Paul is giving authority to give. Not to take, not to demand, not to negotiate. He is giving authority to give. That is what we see here. Our marriages are a partnership. Our marriages are a fellowship. They are not a distant possibility. That's insane. And it is so wrong. And we constantly talk ourselves into it. And I am soon to have to end this lesson because I am still a babe when it comes to verses 6 and 7. Let me tell you that. <laughs> still a babe when it comes to verses 6 and 7. Uh, those of you that are older, smarter, wiser, please help me with this. I've read this for years and years. And when I read verses 6 and 7, I always say, Paul, I wish you didn't write that there. I say to myself, because I, I don't really quite get why you would put that there. And I know it's there for a reason. It's got to be. Everything is, right? They exist. 
What he says there is so incredible. And we've got to strive to make sense of what he says. Because Paul is not saying it's better for you just to be single. I know he's not. Everything else that he said (laughs) would have gone out the window if that was the case. What I do believe so far, and I hope that I've got this right, is that Paul is not wishing for everybody to be a bachelor or a bachelorette. Okay, He's not wishing that life on everyone. But he seems to be talking about better right now if you were not married because of all this that is going on. Just like he said in chapter 7, a little later in verse 26. Notice what he says there. Um, in uh, Let me get over there real quick. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. I think that's the nature that he says this. The the reason that he says in verses 6 and 7, now as a concession, not a command, right? He has no such command from the Lord to say this. He says, I wish all were as I myself am. And I can understand that. With the, I understand that today with the divorce rate nearing and, oh, and going over 50%, don't you? <laughs> Is it really better to be married? Well, you got a 50-50 chance, kid. Flip the coin. We'll see what happens. Uh, no. No, thank you. I would rather be single. I think that's what Paul is saying. That is what Paul is saying. When the distress is so great, it's better to be alone. Because why would he write that otherwise? What could be the purpose of encouraging this single life when most of humanity would struggle to do so? Right? He just mentioned that. And he's going to mention it again. Most people, in order to fulfill their desire and be godly people before God, uh, need the marriage. They need it. But they have to know how to properly use it. How to properly execute it. So, Paul is not issuing a command, but he's issuing encouragement for what can replace this horrible, divisive dysfunction that is happening at Corinth. And it would work for us as well, wouldn't it? That's why I say, if my sons ever came to me and said, Dad, I can't, I can't contain, man, I, this, this girl is all I think about. I'd say, uh-uh. Space, prayer, time, do that. Don't, don't, no more closeness. Get that under control. That's the idea. Better to be single. Better to be single than to take sexual lust into a marriage. Better to be single than to do something like fornication before God. Better to be single. But what we do know, above all things, is what Paul is talking about overall, is purity. Wishing for purity in all things. Knowing what marriage is really for. What it's really all about. And we have to ask ourselves that same question, right? We have to look at what he says about marriage. Did I get married because I thought it would be great to have children? I thought, I I could be a pretty good dad. There was a level of that when I got married. As a young man, I thought about that before I was even 20. I think I would like to do that. (laughs) I wasn't actively pursuing it, but I thought that would be interesting. Okay, And uh, 
did I get married because I want someone else, my friend, my partner, my mutual love. I want someone who who cares and is dedicated to the same things that I am dedicated to. I want a constant daily reminder of the of the, re, the relationship that I have with the Lord. See, I'm very thankful because in a good marriage you should be able to see your spouse every day and go, yeah, just like Christ loves me and gives Himself for me, so do you. You're here to remind me of that. And I told you before, when I am with my beloved, I feel so safe. The whole world may turn against me. I doubt she will. <laughs> The whole world may fail before me. She never has. And it's been quite a while. And that always reminds me of Christ. Not that she is as good as Christ. Not that I am as good as Christ. No, not even close. Never. But she reminds me. And that's what we need to remember. Jesus Christ loves us. With a love that no one else can compare to. He abides with us with a loyalty and a strength that no one else can come to. And so we need to remember to maintain purity because of that. In our marriages, in our lives, in our hearts, and in our minds, can we do that? Can we feel that safety? Can we appreciate it? Can we run to it? Can we grasp for it? Can we never let anything tear it from our grip? That's the question. So let's value God's design for marriage. Let's value God's design for faith. Let's value God's design for salvation. If there is anyone here this morning who has not been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, reach for it. Grab it. Run to it. It will serve you. It will save you. If you are a Christian and you have fallen short of that in any way, allowed your life to fall into any kind of impurity, stop that now. Move forward. Move higher. And gain that salvation for yourself through Jesus Christ because He loves you and died for you. If there's any need you have, please let it be known while we stand together, please.